Well, believe it or not, it has been three weeks since we've been in 1 Corinthians, so a little bit of review is in order. Big picture, we're looking at the believer's freedom, Christian liberty, things that are okay according to the Bible. They are not prohibited. They are not commanded. They're gray areas often that our Christian liberty is manifested in. But in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, we saw that we as believers should be willing to give up these gray areas for the sake of others. Again, that was chapter 8. In chapter 9, 1 Corinthians, Paul's primary example, to the Corinthians of his own practice of such self-sacrifice is found in verses 1 through 18. Specifically, he says he forgoes payment for ministry despite his right to be paid, despite the Lord's institution of payment for vocational ministry. At the end of that particular section, he holds on to that theme but goes into specifics about gospel ministry and specifically evangelism. In verses 19 through 23, he tells us basically that he becomes all things to all men for the sake of the gospel. In other words, he is willing to sacrificially pursue any godly means within the parameters of the Bible necessary to win an audience for the gospel. Whether it's learn and practice cultural customs or refrain from certain foods in their presence or even dress or speech or how he presents the gospel, not compromising the gospel, of course, but perhaps using different words, toning it down. Whatever it takes is basically what he is saying, whatever it takes in the Christian life. Last week I was with my family and I took them to a public gardens. You've seen it before where some of the trees or plants have little placards in front of them. They give the scientific name of that tree or their plant, maybe a little definition of when it first came to California and what different indigenous people have used the bark for, things like that, explaining their significance. Behind us was another family, similar to ours, parents, young children. And I overheard the dad pointing out the little informational signs, telling his young daughter, look, we can learn about the different types of trees. The daughter was confused, never seen that kind of thing before. And so he says, and I quote, it's as if you had a phone pulled up to Google at each plant. It's as if you had a phone pulled up to Google at each plant. Now, as much as that statement makes me want to bang my head on this podium, the reality is that I have found myself using the same sort of explanation to enhance the understanding for my young children or other young individuals like Kyle. But what I realized was what that father was wisely and probably instinctively doing was using, again, any means necessary, whatever it takes to explain to his daughter the meaning of the words and pictures describing that tree. How much more for us, the words and pictures describing a crucified Savior. To help you further understand what that means for us to become all things to all people, I want to engage you in a little bit of an exercise. This is our review but just to help you understand, to grasp this, because I think this, that passage that we saw three Sundays ago can be a little bit confusing. If I were to ask you $200,000, is that a lot of money or is that a little money? What's the answer? The answer is it depends. It depends. What are you talking about? A salary, a car, quite a lot for a car, a house, that's nothing for a house around here. Context is everything, but you won't know the context. You can't be all things to all people if you don't make the effort to listen 
to inform yourself, to learn. Let's say we are talking about a house, $200,000. Is the answer a lot or a little? Again, the answer is it depends. We default to say that's an incredible price for a house around here. But for many, many, I would argue the majority of the country paying $200,000 for a house is unheard of. It's a ridiculous price. It's ridiculously high. There are many places in the country where you can buy a four-bedroom, three-and-a-half-bath house with one-acre yard for a fraction of that. So you need to know the context of whom you are talking to. What's the conversation? What's their background? What's their job? What's their education? You need to understand the particular person, maybe not just the context of the conversation, car versus house, but who is that person? Are you talking, about a, talking to a billionaire playboy who easily spends $200,000 on a weekend getaway with his friends? Or are you talking to a person to whom $200,000 might as well be $200 billion because they are equally unattainable? And friends, let's not forget the person to whom the answer to that question is, I don't know. How much is a dollar worth in my currency? This is what we have to do with people, with the gospel, to be all things to all people. And obviously this goes beyond just words. As we saw with Paul, behavior, cultural norms, dress, food, etiquette, and the like. It does take sacrifice. It may hurt. It may be disgusting eating things that you don't like to eat to get into that place to win an audience for the gospel, to wear uncomfortable clothing. What does that have to do with giving up Christian liberty? Well, for starters, as I just said, the right to be comfortable, the right to not have to learn, adjust, and toil for the sake of another person, another's cultural or situational understanding. Give up that right for the gospel for people. Paul gave up this right because of his passion for the gospel. He gave up all of it willingly, joyfully, for the sake of the gospel. And so should we. So should we. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. For the sake of the gospel, because for the sake of the Lord. The idea of whatever it takes leads us into this morning's passage that finishes off chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that I, after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. This is a well-known passage often used to impassion greater commitment to the Lord through the slaying of sin, rightly so. But I believe this passage is made all the more powerful when we understand its context of giving up Christian liberty. It becomes clear that Paul is using the training as well as the actual competition of an athlete to illustrate that the Christian life is to be lived with focus and structure. And if you have ever met a professional, semi-professional, even collegiate athlete, you will understand in examining their schedule, their diet, their lives, that they indeed do whatever it takes. 
There are rules, that's why. There are standards, there are methods of achieving one's best to keep up with the science, with the nutrition, with the biology. And so rightly so, as he does many other places in the epistles, Paul compares the Christian life and specifically gospel ministry to the athlete. Not just any athlete, not just the guys who go for a little jog to shed some flab. This is the one who wants to win. And so our outline this morning is five qualities of victorious Christian living. Five qualities of victorious Christian living. The first quality of victorious Christian living is determination. Determination. And again, we see all of these from the analogy of the athlete. Again, in verse 24, he writes, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. The rhetorical question that begins this verse and this passage indicates that Paul is indeed continuing his line of thought from the previous verse. Now, this question refers to a great athletic competition. You are all familiar with the Olympic Games. This existed in Paul's day and was the most prominent athletic competition but one of four Pan-Hellenic festivals. Pan-Hellenic simply meaning it involved all of the Greek world. It was a means four times a year to get all of the Greek people together, uniting them all. The Olympics was the greatest of those festivals. The second largest and most well-known was one that was actually sponsored by the city of Corinth and known as the Isthmian Games. Like the Olympic Games, it involved all kinds of foot races, but also other sports such as boxing, as alluded to here. The Isthmian Games were held every two years. And, of course, many of the same athletes in the great Olympic Games would compete. And much like modern competitions of the sort, the stadium was basically the track, the running track. Instead of an oval like we have today, however, it was a parallelogram. It was approximately 200 yards long and 30 yards wide. Now, although the Corinthians, believers and non-believers, would be familiar with all four of these games, the Isthmian Games serves as the backdrop for Paul's lesson due to its physical and relational proximity to his audience, the Corinthians. Paul begins by making a statement in the form of a question. Yes, everyone knows that all those who are actually running in a race are in the race. But there is only one winner in the race. We say there's three, but there's only one gold. There's only one true winner. Nobody at this level of athleticism strives for the silver. They don't strive for second place. Even those who know that there is no way they are going to beat a Michael Phelps or a Usain Bolt and can only hope for second, they still train and run to be first. Because to strive for first is the only way to push yourself to maximum effort. How do you know what second place is going to be? You know first place is going to be the best, so you push yourself to be the best. You push for second, well, friends, all the excuses start flooding in. I'm not going to get first anyway, so, and I think the next, the third guy, you know, and then you're not waking up early. You're not eating what you should be doing. You're not putting in the hours in the weight room on the track. Everyone strives for first place, and this is what Paul is saying. Do your best. Run, train, as if you want to win, as if there was only one winner. Obviously, in the Christian life, there's not just one winner. There's not just one person getting reward in heaven. But you understand the analogy. Do your best. Run to win through self-control, 
and discipline, you must be determined to do whatever it takes. There are no participation trophies here. In the Isthmian Games, Christian life, you don't win simply by participating in a race. You can pay the fees. You can show up on time. But just because the marathon official pins a number to your chest doesn't mean you win the marathon. You're just in it. You must put forth the effort not to finish, but to finish well. This takes tremendous amount of effort and dedication. It takes resolve. It takes concentration. Every ounce of strength, all of your energy. Are you determined, Christian? Are you running to win? No one would do this, but if someone were to observe your life, a non-Christian at work, for example, or a relative, if they were to look at your dedication to the Lord and the Lord's people and the world in the name of the Lord, the world around you, could they justifiably joke, man, it seems like that guy's trying to win some sort of prize. He's all in. Take it down a notch. You trying to win a gold medal? Yes. In fact, that's how I want to run. Are you running like that athlete wanting to get the gold medal? Are you determined? That's the first step. It starts here in the mind. Do you say in the morning and every day of your life, this is how I want to live for God? The second quality of a victorious Christian life or Christian living is abstinence. Abstinence. Look at the first sentence in verse 25. It says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. If you've ever been a true athlete, you, you get this. It's not just self-control during practice. It's not just self-control uh, in the kitchen. It's self-control in all things, your schedule, your sleep, how you, de depending on your sport, probably all sports, even how you walk around and do leisure things so as to not hurt yourself, strain yourself. It's all about the race, the game. You have to have self-control. No matter what length an athlete goes to to win, hiring the best coach, showing up to practice, watching film, whatever, without self-control and an abstinence from the things that will affect him physically, it is all pointless. You need abstinence. Months. Months. No, a lifetime of hard work and training can all be sidelined by one bad meal on race day. That's all it takes. One distraction during the big game, one priority that you think about while you're running, all ruined. Self-control. I don't believe this is the case, at least not by the Olympic Institute today, but for the competitors in the Panhellenic Games, there was a mandatory time of training that had strict rules. This would be the same today as imposed by coaches today. But in modern days, though not regulated by the games themselves, the th same is true of any serious athlete, food, sleep, training, all kind of not, hey, you should do this, but scrutinized, scrutinized to put them at their physical peak. And a key part of this was the avoidance of anything that would affect 
their performance. Listen carefully, Christian. Even legal and legitimate desires have to be forsaken and rejected by the athlete who wants to win. Christian liberty. Whatever it takes. It must be the same with us. Anything that hinders your gospel ministry, anything that hinders your preference for others, anything that hinders your spiritual walk must be forsaken. It must be rejected, whatever it takes. Self-control is mastery over self. The willingness to say no, not only to that which is sinful, but also that which is merely good and not best. I will say it again in a different way. Believer, say no to that which is good but not best. The athlete does that. That's one of the best supplements out there, but it's not the best. Yeah, but this one's half the price. I don't care because I'm winning this race. Give me the best. You, you don't understand. Your high school coach is fine. No, he's not. Hire that guy. Mortgage the house if you have to. Hire that guy because whatever it takes, I'm going to win. Got to say no to a lot. For the athlete... It could be certain foods, distractions, lack of sleep, even family. Even saying, sorry, honey, sorry, kids. A week before the race, I'm getting a hotel with my coach. I cannot be distracted. And I'm keeping my cell phone here. I cannot be distracted. For the Christian, it may be physical things like food and sleep, but more likely involve sins, Christian liberties, wrong priorities. Even Jesus says that those who are worthy of him are those who are willing to forsake family. This is abstinence. You know, for the athletes, Forgoing certain things is very beneficial. For the Christian, it is imperative. It's a non-negotiable. Years ago, I watched as a close friend trained for his first marathon. Not a professional, just wanted to run a marathon. He bought a book that outlined a schedule of how much to run each day to get to that day, that, the, the, the race day. To not do too much, not do too little, to push himself. What to eat leading up to the race. I still remember the night before, early to bed, ate a huge thing of pasta. You sure you're supposed to be doing that? Yeah, the book says. They know. He wanted to do his best. He followed it to a T. His first marathon race, did he think he would win? Of course not. But he did everything that book said to give it his best. Just the other day, I met someone who showed me his 30-day step-by-step guide to be able to run more, become a runner. Some of you piously pour over every detail of your workouts, your recipes, reading labels, counting calories, finding organic, abstaining from any ingredient or number that is not allowed. This is your nutrition label for the Christian life. Read it like I read ingredient labels because a wrong ingredient could kill my son. Read it. Memorize it. Every jot, every tittle. This is your guide to victorious living your training manual, it's your recipe, follow God. How? 
follow the Bible. Quality number three. You need purpose. You need purpose. The end of verse 25 says, They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, we an imperishable. Why all of this? Why the determination? Why the abstinence? Why the discipline? We'll look at more. For the prize. For the prize. At the end of verse 25, Paul is making a clear ironic contrast between the athlete's intense effort and the pitiful prize. A wreath. You've seen it before. A laurel they put on his head. It's the crown. We have a gold medal today. And you say, yeah, but there's more to it. He gets fame. These days he gets fortune. Still pitiful in comparison. It's a perishable wreath. Perishable because it was made of leaves, usually olive, ivy, or parsley. And another contrast is made to the prize that we are striving for, which is imperishable. It does not die, it does not rot, it does not fade away as fame and fortune does. It is with us forever, it is eternal. This is not salvation, you understand? We don't earn that, we can't lose that. It's reward. It's God's glory. 2 Timothy 4.8, I'll read that for you. In the future, Paul writes to Timothy, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. There it is again. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 1 Peter 1.4 speaks of our inheritance as, I quote, imperishable and undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's reserved in heaven for you right now. You say, but, but we don't earn salvation. I get that there's greater reward for how we live, but what it's talking about here in Second Timothy and First Peter says it's already there, it's already it's ours, all believers will get it. So why strive for it? Other religions I get, right? You need to earn your salvation, so they're going to strive, they're going to work, they're going to literally beat and flay themselves. But not us, we already have it, so why push harder? Do you not get it? The fact that it's already ours should motivate you to push even harder. You don't try to earn your, your, your title of child to your parents. It's because they are already your parents. It's because they already love you that you push so hard to please them, to serve them, to help them. We need to stop wasting time being distracted by things that provide a temporal reward. I get it. We have families. We have jobs. We need to pay the bills. That's not what we're talking about here. It's when our lives are so focused on temporal reward, we must seek that which is eternal. That is our purpose. And even if that is not a conscious, acknowledged purpose in your life day by day, understand that that is your purpose as God has created you and then recreated you in salvation. Why? For this. So though you may not live it, you may not acknowledge it, God created you for a purpose, to glorify Him. Even non-Christians Though they reject it and don't know it, don't believe it, they have a purpose, which is to glorify God. And we too, to strive for the eternal, to strive for the reward, to win the race. Let me give you another quality of victorious Christian living. It's illustrated by the athlete focus. Focus. Got to focus heard that before. Hey, focus. Do this to your kids. You do this to yourself sometime. Listen up. Focus. Don't get distracted. There's a lot here. Right? The, the world is like Disneyland. Right? I want to see that. I want that. I want to eat that. Focus. Listen up first. You do not run away. 
You don't run off. Stay with the family. We're going to eat when it's time to eat. We're going to stand in this line, right? Focus. There's so much that's distracting you. Paul says in verse 26, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. Neither the runner nor the boxer is in the business of wasting time or energy. They know how important every ounce of energy is to be used to win. A sprint is just a matter of seconds. One missed punch is the difference between a knockout and getting knocked out. They need a focus. No boxer in the middle of the round waves at his wife. Hey, you guys have, you guys have YouTube. You've seen this. The runner pumping his arms in victory, and then the guy runs by him, right? The boxer gets distracted, and he's laid out flat. Paul is going to run toward a goal, and he is going to land his punches. These analogies simply mean that Paul engages in the competition in a way that will ensure victory. There is no doubt that he wants it. You've heard this before. The ringside announcer will often look at that boxer and say, he's hungry for it. We need to be hungry for it. We want to want it. We are not to merely hope to win. We are to win. That is to be our mindset, but our mindset must be backed by action, focus. This takes great focus. When we are not unwaveringly focused on God's glory, then we will be swept away by the demands of work and family. We will be tempted adrift by the, the allures and pleasures of this world. The boxer is staring at his opponent and singularly focused on his fight. He doesn't just not want to miss. He dare not miss. You ever seen the trainer in the boxer's corner trying to signal the boxer? And he keeps doing it over and over again. Why? Because the boxer's never looking at him. He's looking at the opponent. The trainer keeps doing it over and over so that when the opponent has his back to the trainer, he'll see him in the peripheral vision and get the cue because he's focused on the opponent. The runner does not look at the crowd or let his mind wander. He is focused. I get it. I do it. It's hard to focus in the midst of the rat race of life. We get sidetracked. And in fact, sometimes we get so committed to focusing on the Lord and ministry that we get tired. We can't focus anymore on the Lord. We get out of focus. It's spring. It's nice weather. It's supposed to hit 90 degrees in some parts of the bay today. Did you know that? We're starting to open our windows and stare out of them, look at the yard, look at the trees, watch the kids. You ever done this? You stare out that window too long, and if your mind is not actively engaged, pretty soon what happens? Your eyes refocus, and all you can see is the screen on the window. This is actually a big problem with fighter jet pilots. They see nothing for so long, their eyes default to the glass in front of them. Very dangerous. The same thing happens in life. Our minds must be actively engaged so that our focus stays on what matters. Your eyes will end up focusing on the screen because it's what's in between your eyes and what you're looking at or what you want to look at. So, beloved, what is in between your eyes and the Lord? What is your default focus? What is it that so consumes your mind and your passions 
that your focus always defaults to it. This is hard work, guys. But as we saw in the last point, it is rewarding work. When you consider the difference between this temporal life and on earth and eternity, you realize it doesn't seem so hard. It is still physically and emotionally and mentally challenging. But when you look at the big picture and say this reward, regardless of how rewarding it is, the money, the accolades, the comfort, whatever it may be, compared to eternity, it's nothing. And compared to eternity, it makes things a lot easier because you realize how temporal these things are, how fleeting. Usain Bolt, labeled as the fastest man in the world. In the last three Olympics, he is no longer going to uh, compete in the Olympics. Last three Summer Olympics, he won a total of eight gold medals. Eight gold medals. He's a sprinter. Eight gold medals. Countless world records. And in those three Olympic Games, in where he earned himself three gold medals, you know what his total time competing was? 127 seconds. In the time that it took you to walk from your car to this room this morning, Usain Bolt won three gold medals. Seems like nothing to win such high praise and reward. Two minutes of your life, now you're one of the most famous athletes in the world ever. But when you compare your time on earth to the eternity in which you will enjoy your reward from God, this life, in comparison, will seem like a mere 127 seconds. And your reward, my friends, and the millions he has received in sponsorships will seem like nothing compared to our eternal reward. Friends, you can do it. You just got to focus. Focus. Let me give you a fifth quality of victorious Christian living. We've seen determination, abstinence, purpose, focus, and of course, fifthly, discipline. Discipline. 1 Corinthians 9.27 says, But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. If you have the older version of the NAS, it says, But I buffet my body. It's an uncommon word. It means discipline. Spelled the same, but it's not buffet my body. It's actually pretty much the opposite of what Paul is saying here. See, if a competitor in the Isthmian Games didn't meet the requirements of training, he would be disqualified, not just before race, way before the race. The imposed by the Games Committee's time of training and requirements and that's why he would embark on this life of extreme discipline. You know what this word discipline means here that Paul is using? It means to hit under the eye. You guys ever been hit? Why not hit the eye? So when you get a black eye, it's because you're hit right here, not the eyeball. This word discipline literally means to beat black and blue. It's what we do to knock out the body's desire for comfort, for ease, abundance, and pleasure. Anything that would hinder us from becoming all things to all men. 
Paul goes on, he says, we are to make our bodies our slaves. Your body is to serve you and not hinder your walk. Make your body serve God. Bring it under control. Everything in your everyday life must be held captive for the purpose of the gospel. Listen, just like you and I, athletes want to sleep in. They don't want to wake up at 4 in the morning to hit the weight room. They want to have dessert that's not a protein bar. But they can't, not if they want to win. Discipline. See, they don't let their bodies tell them what to do. Because when they do that, let their bodies dictate when to eat, what to eat, how much to eat, sleep more, stop because it hurts, then they won't perform at their peak. Talk about being uncomfortable. As a rule, athletes have to ignore pain. Sore muscles, that's the point. Keep going. It's the same with us. There are certain types of pain that athletes have to avoid so they don't break things, and it's the same with us. Be all things, all people, but don't go into a place that where you will sin. But we have to be disciplined. What does that mean? Don't let your body stop you from serving because it's tired. Don't let it keep you from your meeting because you're hungry. Don't let it tell you not to share the gospel because it's uncomfortable. Don't let it dictate what you look at because it likes how that feels when you look at her. We get this, the separation between mind and body. Some of you get this from this morning. Alarm goes off. Your body says five more minutes. Your mind says, no, I need to get ready for church. That's exactly what we're talking about here, but in ministry. If you do not make your body your slave, your servant, your underling, you will seek ease rather than evangelism, comfort rather than sacrificial compassion. You will desire to be served rather than serve sin rather than sanctification. Keep your body under control. Then when you have your body un under control, keep it there. No matter how much you have grown or how spiritually mature you are, discipline is still required. Even for the best of athletes, the world record breakers, the gold medal winners, continued discipline is required to stay there or even to excel still more. We all need the Lord, and discipline is a focus on the Lord. There are two kinds of people in this world, and both of them need the Lord. When we don't discipline, we risk disqualification, as Paul says here. Again, not the loss of salvation, that is impossible, but the loss of reward. And on this planet, the loss of effective witness and testimony. And I want you to notice that your greatest enemy is your own self, your own body. It is not Satan that will disqualify you, it is you. You will disqualify yourself. So how much does the gospel mean to you? And I don't want you to answer that question as a singular question, as if you have a blank 8.5 by 11 piece of paper, and that's the only question in the middle. You must ask that question in comparison to everything else in your life. How much does the gospel mean to you? Are you willing to hurt for it? Are you willing to beat your body into submission for the gospel, living it out and preaching it? Are you willing to discipline for God? And I beg you, I beg you, don't ever think that all this means is getting in your quiet times. It's living out your quiet times. This discipline 
is way more than waking up early so you can read your Bible and pray. That's part of it. 30 minutes a day, anyone could do that. This is a discipline that is required every second that you are awake. And frankly, when you're asleep too. Because what you discipline your mind to think about when you're awake is often reflected in your dreams. doesn't mean anything, except maybe you're thinking about those things a little too much or too little. Determination, abstinence, purpose, focus, discipline. You say, Pastor Roger, I can't live like that. After all, he's comp comparing the life that you're telling us to live to the professional athlete. How am I supposed to live like that? Can I assure you that not only can you live like that, you do. All the time. For your job, for your kids, for the recognition, for the money, for the comfortable life, for the vacation. Sleepless nights to take care of the baby. All-nighters to finish that project. Skipping meals to check off your task list. You do it for them. Do it for God! Whatever it takes. Are you running the Christian life in such a way that you are determined to win the prize like that runner that is focused on the goal? Surely you can do it for God. You do it for yourself every single day. Every day, we sacrifice and push ourselves to the limit, beyond our limits, at our jobs, in our homes. All for what? For something that is perishable and fading. Your boss's respect, your comfort, your sleep, your vacation, your whatever. You can't sleep at night because you're worried about what your boss will think. What about God? Where's the fear of God? I get that it's different, but I know many people skip church to go to work, but they don't skip church. They don't skip work to go to church. My wife and I, we have people counsel spiritual meetings, counseling meetings for work. They never skip work to be counseled or be edified, encouraged. And even when people are willing to do that, oh, but don't touch my vacation time. You've got to be careful, guys. What about God? What about other people? What about eternal reward? I mean, Look at this comparison. The difference between the two, the imperishable, the, the imperishable wreath, or the perishable wreath rather, compared to the eternal imperishable reward. And you can think about all the perishable rewards that we get and we strive for on this planet and this earth. Are you willing to give up a God-given heavenly crown of glory for the ancient athlete's crown of dead parsley? But that's what you're doing. You want riches? This is it. You want a raise? This is it. You want your boss's appreciation? This is it. You want more comfort? You want more sleep? Here you go. get it? It's absurd. Versus eternal reward? Parsley. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. 
They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I and you should run in a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you recognizing our time and money and efforts and concern and sacrifices in pursuing silly, perishable, worldly things. Father, what a privilege it is that you have provided for us jobs and families, enjoyment of different things. May we turn those things into non-priorities so that we will focus on you. Give us a passion, a focus, a self-control, a discipline akin to a professional athlete, but not for a perishable wreath, but for our imperishable reward. Help us to be mindful, to remember what matters. When the busyness of work, when the stress of life, bills, crying babies, wedding planning, dating, all of these things tempt us from being, to be sidetracked from things that matter. Help us to regain our focus on what truly matters. To use these things for your glory. May we prefer others more than ourselves. May we prefer you more than our bosses. May we sacrifice for you even more than for our own kids. We want to be these people, Lord. It is hard, and we know we can't do it without your help. At the same time, we know that you are helping us and wanting to help us more than we receive it. Help us to receive it. Make us those who compete to win. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand as we close in